the marinade. There's no O in marinade. Let's try it one more time. Ready? One, <laughs> two, three. <laughs> the marinade. Marrow. Marrow. Marinade. Bone marinade. The marinade. The marinade. With Jason Earl. I've come to know the wish list of my father I've come to know the shipwrecks where he wished I've come to wish aloud among the overdressed crowd Come to witness now Welcome to The Marinade with Jason Earl A free-flowing conversation about the creative process with creative people This is episode 96 and our guest is Joe Pug Joe is a singer, songwriter, and podcaster whose work has meant so much to me since I was introduced to his music over a decade ago. Pug has released a handful of excellent full-length solo studio albums, a couple of equally outstanding EPs, and a must-listen live record live at Lincoln Hall, which includes Pug's friend, The Great Strand of Oaks. His most recent album, The Diving Sun, is one of my favorite records of the year. In addition to music, Pug has a fantastic podcast called The Working Songwriter, where he has hosted the likes of Brian Koppelman, Ray Wiley Hubbard, John Hyatt, Lucinda Williams, Todd Snyder, and, and many, many more. This was a huge honor, y'all. I'm grateful for the opportunity to bring you my conversation with Joe Pug. And I've come to meet the sheriff and his posse To offer him the broadside of my jaw I've come here to get broke, then maybe bum a smoke We'll go drinking two towns over after all I'll go drinking two towns over after all Come to meet the legendary taker. All right, well, let's, let's put off actually writing together. Yeah, sounds good. <laughs> Man, I, you know, when I started this show, uh, you know, I had like a, a list of dream guests and you were on that list. So I'm really excited oh, wow. for this opportunity. Thank you. Thank You're you. Welcome. That's I, quite the compliment. Well, you know, I, 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 I often refer to this one experience like how i got into your uh music as like a commercial for making sure you get there for the opener because okay i saw you uh open for steve earl what was that oh eight oh nine something like that yes mm -hmm. and uh in jacksonville at the florida theater and yep. you absolutely captivated that crowd um, you were self-deprecating and funny, and then we're playing these gorgeous songs that none of us had heard, and just slaying the room. And you made a you made a a fan that day, and I've been into your music ever since. Oh man, well that's 
that's good, man. Something I did 10 years ago is still paying, paying dividends. So that's, that's what I call value. Well, I wonder if you can kind of like, you've said a, a bit about that time and, I, but I wonder if you could maybe take us back then and what that feeling was like being there with such a legend on stage. I, I think your joke was like, I don't want to misquote you, but you said like you you pulled up in your Corolla next to his, his tour bus. <laughs> Here's this like, yeah, you know, this, this institution in, um, in American roots music. That you're yeah. Um, what was that like? Well, you have to realize I was like, I was something like three months away from, you know, clocking in at a job every, every day before I was on the road with Steve. I mean, I, I had worked as a carpenter in Chicago, uh, doing framing carpentry and playing music at night. Um, and my last job in Chicago was in an architectural salvage company, which sounds a lot fancier than it is. Basically, I was just going in and doing demo work and, uh, but slightly, slightly more detailed demo work so that we could take away some of the architectural details and sell them. So, and, you know, and getting paid uh, about 15 bucks an hour to do it. So that's, that's kind of the background. Uh, and then three months later, through a kind of crazy series of events, um, I end up on the road with Steve Earl opening for him. Um, and, and, that, and then that has led to, this is what I still do for a living, you know, 10, 12, 13 years later. Uh, this is how I, you know, pay my mortgage and buy my kids uh, string cheese, you know, so um <laughs> It's it's all been pretty improbable, um, and I think because it was improbable, you, you know, you kind of framed it as like, well, you're on stage with this, you know, legend of American music, and how did that feel? And it was just all so improbable that I didn't even really consider how unlikely it was at the time. Mm -hmm. I, I now know how unlikely it was, like looking back and and seeing how life goes and how things like that almost never happen. But but at the time, it just seemed like a good ride to be on, and uh, I was just focused on doing a really good job and so i didn't i didn't have too much time for reflection in the moment there's almost it seems like maybe there's an advantage to that almost right like not just kind of like um uh, it sort of forces you to be in the to be present yes uh and in fact i i still try to to live like that i mean for the most part i don't read um, any reviews of you know live shows or of albums. Um, I don't read any. I mean, I got rid of my Twitter account. I don't have a Twitter account anymore because I don't want any kind of real time um, real time analysis of of what I'm up to. I, I kind of don't. I don't care for that. It, and I especially don't care for that from people that I don't personally know. You know, I, I have a lot of close friends. I have some family members that I'm really close to and I'm more than happy to hear their feedback on, on what I'm up to. Uh, but as far as people that I don't know, I, I don't, I have pretty much zero interest in, uh, uh, any, any sort of, uh, analysis they have. So, yeah, I mean, I think that kind of mode has always allowed me to pretty much live, um, in, in the moment, professionally at least and uh and focus on the work that's at hand that is so interesting do you 
do you seek out that feedback from friends and family and people you trust? Are they offering? Yes, that? I do. You seek it out. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I think if you're taking, if you're not taking any feedback from anybody, I mean, that's kind of psychopathic, you know, and that's kind of narcissistic. Um, so no, I mean, I'm definitely, uh, getting feedbacks of sanity from uh, people that I'm close to, but I just don't. We live in a world with so much feedback now that mm. to respond to not just all of it, but even most of it or a large part of it uh, would just be absolutely paralyzing. Wow. Yeah, that's such a great point. I think, like, so the challenge there also, especially with creative work, is the fact that like creative work is so subjective. And so if you're getting feedback on the, the thing you've created, it's also so emotional, right? So you've put so much of yourself right. into it and so much of your own, your time and energy into it. But any feedback on that is gonna be subjective. It's not like a football game where there's a score, you know, where <laughs> it's like, right. clearly right. this didn't go well. Um, it's not that clear. And so it's interesting to me to think about like who you're asking for that feedback. Um, cause that in itself presents a different challenge. I suppose who I'm ultimately asking for feedback as, as far as professional work goes is whoever my audience is writ large. And if I'm creating work that they find beautiful, they will, let me know that, uh, in many different ways. Um, uh, the most significant one for me would be buying records and buying tickets. And, and honestly, man, if they're not doing those things, um, I, I believe that what I'm doing just isn't beautiful or, or compelling enough, uh, for them and that I need to, uh, maybe reassess. If you make something that's truly beautiful, uh, people can't get enough of it. And they, they will stumble over those themselves to come be a part of it. They'll stumble over themselves to give you hard-earned dollar bills to to have a piece of it. And so um, unless you're like some really, really, really super-duper ahead-of-his-or-her-time genius, completely misunderstood, you know, in general, for most of us, if you make something really beautiful, um, then you're going to know. And so I guess the, the the main source of feedback that I go to is is my audience writ large, and if they continue to uh, support me, if they continue to seek out the work that I do and kind of, you know, vote with their dollars in a way to say that I think that this is beautiful, I want to be a part of it, then that's um, that's sort of a the only meta feedback that I need. I love that expression, vote with your dollars. I've been thinking about that a lot in different contexts. Uh, I voted. Yeah. I voted with my dollars to buy a copy of *The Diving Sun, which I do find beautiful. Thank you. And you're welcome. Thank you. And I, I'm I'm interested about that record because you on your website you talk about it. Um, and these are my words, not yours, but you you kind yeah. of say like it was cobbled together, basically. Like there are these mm -hmm. pieces from different parts of your career, but it feels so cohesive and smooth. And I, I'm interested in this because you also, on a recent episode of The Working Songwriter with Josh Ritter, you said you guys were talking about the idea of like other creatives making it look smooth. And it seems like mm -hmm. 
you are pulling that off. Like in the moment you were both kind of like, you know, yeah, acting as it, it, it sounded like you didn't feel as though it was going so that it came across so smooth, but it does come across so smooth. And I wonder if you could speak to that a little bit about how that record came together and sort of the art of it becoming smooth. You know, when I first started making creative work and specifically albums, I would think to myself, um, I'd be very self-conscious of like, well, was this all recorded in the same place? Uh, were these were these songs written at the same time? Because it, it's not going to sound cohesive if these songs weren't written in the same batch. It's not going to sound cohesive if they weren't recorded in the same place, on the same microphone with the same guitar, while I was in the same mood. And I think that that's a classic example of uh, someone who's sort of a an amateur um, projecting uh, insecurities onto a piece of work. And and as I've gotten older and more kind of seasoned at um, making creative work, uh, I just trust myself more to to really just put my two ears on it and say, well, you know, it doesn't matter necessarily where this was recorded or no one's going to know the backstory of how anything's recorded. The only thing that's going to matter is what are coming out of the left and right earbuds when they press play on Spotify. Like that's, I mean, that's reality there. So um, it's made me trust my own ears when I, when I'm working on something because I can just kind of close my eyes as I'm referencing the mixes and make a decision for myself. Does this fit together? Does this tell some sort of cohesive story um, is, does this hang together? Um, and then I can make a judgment call on that, uh, or not. And I don't need, um, I, I don't need some grand backstory for myself to justify it anymore. I can just say, no, I, you know, I've been making music for a while. I take it really seriously. I work really hard on it. And I think that this sounds of a piece, you know, and, uh, and, and that should be enough. Is that evolution in in thought process a function of just experience, or is that something you learn from, say, a mentor or someone else? Uh, I have mainly learned it from experience and um, and putting out a lot of different creative projects and over the course of time, realizing that I was spending a lot of an inefficient amount of energy worrying about certain things that don't matter. Um, uh, like some of those factors that I just described, it doesn't matter. Um, and what really matters at the end of the day is when you, when you play a stereo mix of something, whether it sounds beautiful, whether it sounds compelling, um, that's the only thing that matters at that point. And it doesn't matter how you got there. It doesn't matter if it cost you, uh, 200 bucks a song to get it recorded or, uh, 20,000 bucks per song to get it recorded. It doesn't matter. All that matters is that it's compelling and beautiful. And, um, that has allowed me to looking at it that way has allowed me to really, uh, focus in on the most important parts of, uh, producing creative work and really not put my attention on the myriad things that are not important in, in, in producing creative work. 
when you think about like uh the way that record came together um i because when i hear it sonically and i think the last two records really sonically mm -hmm. there's there seems to be it's still it's still joe pug it's still the mm -hmm. the the smart writing that we're used to it's but but there's like um I'm trying to think of the best way to say this like there's there's a sense of melody that seems different to me when i hear this record and i and i mean that in a good way um and i don't mm -hmm. know if it's more piano on the new record um or what it is but there's there seems to be a different sense of melody on this record and i wonder if that's just me hearing something or if that's like an intentional uh, shift in your in your work. Well, I, I think it uh, would be a result of you, many of the songs in this album are songs that didn't make other albums, and uh, maybe they didn't make those other albums not because I didn't think that they were good enough to be released, but because they didn't hang together with uh, other pieces of work, and so you end up with this kind of batch of songs that you don't know what to do with because you couldn't put it on other projects. And it, it kind of turns out that the reason that they were all left off other projects um, uh, means that they have something in common. And I, I think that melodic sense might be something that they all had in common that didn't fit on uh, earlier records. So um, when it came time to look in the, in my sketchbook basically for, for what I had to make a new project with, um, these songs did have a common sort of uh, exploration of melody uh, with one another. Awesome. Can you talk a little bit about um, your Sunday songs that you've been doing since the pandemic began? And um, th there's such a, when I, when I watch those episodes, um, there's, you seem to get a great amount of joy from that experience. It seems to be a very intimate kind of experience. Can you talk a little bit about it? Yeah. Uh, so when the pandemic began, I just had a feeling from the very jump that it was going to be, that it wasn't going to be, you know, well, we're just going to slow the spread for two weeks and then back at it. You know what I mean? I remember in March, um, my agent talking to different promoters around the country because we had, had to cancel a tour just like everybody else. And, you know, a lot of the promoters saying things like, uh, well, let's just be safe and push this stuff all the way back to like June. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's like, and I just remember being like, man, you guys are a lot more uh, sanguine on this than I am. And um, so projecting that outward, I, I thought, well, I'm going to need a way to perform that would be pandemic possible. And so I, I spent a, a lot of time and energy uh, researching how to get a really good AV signal going on. Um, I knew a fair amount about the audio portion of it because that's the medium that I work in. And I knew almost nothing about the video portion of it. So I really had to, it took me a couple months to do a lot of reading, and, uh, you know, as is the case with learning anything these days, watching a lot of YouTube, uh, to, to figure it out. And, um, I basically figured out what I needed for a, a really good streaming video setup. Um, because I didn't want it to look like I, I thought, well, if I'm going to do a streaming show going forward, I, I want it to like look like a show. Like I don't, I want it to look, if possible, I want to look, I want it to look like Jimmy Fallon or something like that. I mean, you know, not that it was going to be that good, but like the, in a way with all the content on the web being in the same place, like in a way that's kind of what you're competing with, 
You know what I mean? So I, I didn't want it to just look like some scratchy, you know, the selfie camera from an iPhone um, with some crappy USB phantom powered microphone that you bought that was manufactured in China and cost, you know, $95. Like I didn't want it to sound like that. And it didn't want it to look like that. So I invested some time. I invested some money um, getting it to look and sound good. And then I just started doing a show uh, once a week. It still is every Sunday night, 9 p.m. Eastern on my YouTube channel. And um, it's been great. I mean, I'll be honest, like since the pandemic has kind of waned, you know, our, our viewership has basically cut in half from what it was during the pandemic. And mm. um, part of me thought like, well, you know, maybe it's time to wrap this up and uh, stop it. But then the more I thought about it, I was like, well, I, I love doing this. I love interacting with people in the comments. I love taking the requests. Um, I, I love, uh, it, basically I, I kind of look at it as like a weekly residency. I, I live right outside of DC. So instead of me going into a bar in DC and, and doing a weekly residency where I, you know, go through my catalog or play some covers or try out some new tunes, like I, I just do it on YouTube for, for anyone who wants to watch it for free. And, uh, it's been, I, I plan on just doing this uh, going forward. I, I, I really enjoy it. And, uh, who knows, maybe the, the viewership will eventually completely fall off a cliff and there'll be no one there. And, and that would be fine. I, I would understand that. I mean, to, to a certain degree, I get, you know, I've only released, you know, 60, 70, 80 songs. So how many times can you listen to those in a row? But <laughs> I, I'm enjoying it, and uh, I'm going to continue to do it. It, it feels like a um, a very special way to connect with people who listen to my music. You 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 hit on a, something that, that I wanted to ask you about, and and I'd like to hear more about the. You said you're just going to keep doing it, and I'm I'm curious about like you have these different creative outlets. You have several of them, and I'm curious about like if you can how you how you view the future of those things because i mean you have been on record saying like there was a moment when touring as a musician looked like maybe wasn't going to continue for you and I, mm -hmm. i'm curious you know i'm curious about like how you balance that like how you consider what am i going to keep doing and and are there projects that i that i'm not going to keep doing well, I, I think it's really important anytime people who are just breaking into the business in their early 20s approach me and ask, you know, hey, man, do you, do you have any advice? Uh, my only advice at this point, and, and it's advice that I take to heart and, and do myself, is uh, is participating in as many mediums as you can authentically participate in. Um, so for me, that ends up being, you know, releasing albums to Spotify, releasing albums on vinyl, doing a podcast, doing uh, a live stream, uh, doing a monthly newsletter that I spend a lot of time um, uh, curating. Um, and, and those are about, you know, those four or five things are about the five things that I can authentically uh, communicate in. And it allows me to hit an audience from many different, uh, it allows me to communicate with an audience uh, many different times over the course of a year. Um, and that's served me well. Uh, and, and 
but kind of a tandem to that is also the idea is that you shouldn't participate in mediums that you don't understand. Um, like I mentioned to you earlier, I, I scuttled my, my Twitter account. And the reason for that is, you know, I, I consume Twitter. I, I know what Twitter is. I know the culture that's on Twitter. I, I know the way that people, there's like a specific way that you talk on Twitter versus on Instagram or, or somewhere else. And I just decided that I, I wasn't going to be able to authentically communicate on Twitter because it just doesn't, doesn't jive with me. So just get rid of it. Not looking to do that. Um, so yeah, I mean, as I look for things to do, I, I want to touch people in as many mediums as I possibly can, but it has to be a medium that I understand and, and that I can participate in authentically. Wow. Wow. Uh, that's really insightful. What, what are there other mediums that you have either tried or considered trying that we, we don't see your work in now or, or, uh, in the past, are there other mediums you've considered that you might uh, dip a toe into? Um, I would like to go, I don't have any time. I have three kids under the age of <laughs> five. So I don't have any time to do more than what I'm doing right now. But um, once my kids get older and I, I do have more time to work, um, uh, I, I would like to expand the amount of podcasts that I do. I, I think I'd like to do some um, uh, some music history uh, podcasts or maybe some like a serialized podcast that's a biography of a particular songwriter and just kind of start producing sort of works like that in that medium. Cause I really love that medium and I think of podcasting and I don't think it's just relegated to, or it's obviously not relegated to just interviews. Like you can do different styles of shows. Um, mm. So I think that, and then this is weird to talk about as a medium, but I think it totally is. And um, I think I'm eventually going to take my, all of my merchandising operations in house to give people a um, a better and more authentic and more compelling experience when they they order merchandise uh, from me, basically. So, like when you get a record, I want it to look a certain way and come in certain packaging. And I mean, I think that obviously the best example for this would be someone like Jack White, who has branded, mm. you know, he has his branded Third Man store that has a venue attached to it, and he makes his own vinyl. And you know, when it arrives, it's going to look, it's going to be designed beautifully and, and and you're gonna have a certain feeling when, when you purchase uh stuff from him and i think that um well actually i mean that is something that I, i'm heading towards uh right now i i'm i'm heading towards taking all those operations in-house and um and um and it, it, it's really not i know in some ways that might just sound like a cynical like all right well, he wants to just, you know, make some more dough. And and of course I do. I mean, who doesn't want to make more money? But it's not just that. Like I, I want I want my songs and my creative work to arrive in people's hands in a certain way. I want to take more control of what it actually feels like, what it actually looks like when you when you receive that stuff in, in the mail. And um uh, that is a new medium that I'm exploring very aggressively uh right now. Yeah, it it doesn't sound like it doesn't sound just like hey he just he wants to make more money because I think one of the things that I wrote down to to ask you about was the fact that you have been creative throughout your career about how your music is put out. I mean, I love the mm -hmm. fact that with the Diving Sun, you had to 
you you had to get a physical copy really i mean you can listen there are a few yeah. you know there are songs out there but um it motivated me like i love your work and it rather than just lazily pulling it up on spotify or whatever i i bought the damn vinyl and i'm glad i did yeah. you know um, yeah but the yeah, fact yeah. that you made that conscious choice forced my hand on that which is which is a nice problem to have and so i i am interested in that like how you do you again are you looking to uh people like jack white and uh for for examples are you are you spending time like brainstorming ideas what is that process the creative process of that merch piece look like well um it, I'm, I'm just basing it on being a consumer myself. And there's different companies uh, that when I order something from, you get something and you spent some money on it. And when you, when it arrives, it's, there's either no love put into it. And it's just kind of like, Oh, you bought this t-shirt that you saw an ad for Instagram. Great. Well, here, we're going to toss some shitty bag and we're going to uh, mail it off to you uh, the slowest way that we can. Um, and we're also going to charge you, bunch of money for shipping that doesn't just go to the shipping, but we're going to make a profit on too. And, and just, you end up as a consumer kind of feeling gross. Whereas if you get something and it's packaged beautifully and mm -hmm. there's love and attention put into it and there's a note from the owner, um, you know, that feels different. I, I think someone, one of my contemporaries who does the best job of this is BJ Barham yep. of American Aquarium. He took all of his stuff in house um, years ago. He's been the hardest working man in uh, show business that I know for as long as I've known him. And uh, it, it had always been a touring thing. And then for him, I'd say four or five years ago, I think he took his merchandise operations um, in-house. You know, when I go hang out with him down in uh, in North Carolina at his house, there's, you know, he has a beautiful historic house down there. And in, in one of the rooms, there's it's just dedicated to his uh, merchandising operation. And when you get something from him, it's all, you know, it, it, it's beautifully designed. It arrives packaged. He packaged it himself. There's a note from him in there. Um, it, there's just some pride in the thing. There's there's love in it. So, um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm looking at it from being a consumer myself and then also seeing one of my contemporaries do just an absolutely wonderful job with it himself and saying to myself, well, you know, you can't you can't bitch and moan about anything in life if you're not uh, at least holding yourself up to the to the standards that your friends are doing there. And it's like, well, you got to take it to the next level. You know, he's really thrown down the, thrown down the gauntlet here. That's awesome. Yeah. I, I, I thought of BJ immediately when, when we started talking about this, I have yeah. a great 48 tour post signed poster on my wall Yeah, and uh, a note in it, like in the frame from uh, when I ordered a mask from him at the beginning of the pandemic. And it says, thanks. For oh, huh. Thanks for always supporting this thing down in Florida. See you on the other side of this thing. And it's just wow. like a, a really thoughtful, you know, cause BJ has been on my show a couple of times, we don't know yeah. each other well, but like, um, he's been so good to the show and he's been so gracious with his time. And, uh, yeah. you know, I've bought plenty of stuff from him. I, I'm a huge fan and, uh, yeah. Right. I and mean, just like, what a, that's a really thoughtful note. And it does make me want to buy more stuff, <laughs> you know, it, aside from how great the music is, it makes me want to support him. You know, it's funny. I, so he's been really, um, he's probably one of my closest friends in the music business. It's, it's either him or Tim Showalter from Strand of Oaks. And so we've talked a lot and he's really been shepherding me through this process of bringing it, 
in-house. And one of the things I asked him, I was like, well, hey, man, you know, if you're the one sending all this stuff out, what happens when you go on the road? Like, doesn't stuff, doesn't take a little bit longer for it to get out? And he said, you know, it does, but I'm at a point with the people who listen to my music and order my records that pretty much everyone understands that it's coming directly from me. So they're, they they totally get if I've been on the road, it's going to take longer to get there. And for the people who don't understand that, if they send me an email you know, with a, a concern or a complaint about something, when they get the email back from me that just says, hey, I'm the guy that packages all this stuff. Thanks for your order. I'll send it as soon as I get home from tour or I can send you a refund right now if you need. Um, he said, you know, not only are they – uh, satisfied with that response, but it, it kind of makes a, a fan for life out of somebody to get that sort of detailed response and, and realize that what you're dealing with is basically a family business here. Yeah. I, I think maybe it was your I'm trying to remember which episode it was of the working songwriter where you talked a little bit about that. Maybe the Ray Wiley Hubbard episode, which was fantastic by the way, mm -hmm. but Oh, he's um, great. Yeah. Oh my God. He's just so smart and so funny. Um, where you talked about like going out and shaking hands um, and mm -hmm. like, and, and how much it, how much of a difference it makes to like, after the show go out and maybe it was Paul Thorne, actually, now that I think about it, mm -hmm. spend, yep. spend, spend, who was also, that was also a fantastic episode. Um, spend some time with folks and really make that personal connection. It does make a difference, man. Like the songs are there and they're wonderful and the performance is wonderful. I'm, I've, I've had the great fortune of seeing you a couple of times and you, you do have, such an incredible presence on stage, but that like spending time with people makes a difference. It does. It does. And it, it, um, I was, I, you know, it, it doesn't just make it seem like you care it, because that would, that would, uh, mm. that would imply that it's just artifice that you, you know, you want to make it seem like you give a damn. It's, it's just that you actually do, you actually do give a damn. That, that you you want that you're genuinely grateful mm -hmm. that people would uh, support your creative work in a way where you can do it for a living. Um, and I know a lot of the guys and the girls who are on, you know, kind of the working songwriter path that I am, where it's like, you know, uh, it's no complaints here, but it's you know, it's it's a pretty blue collar living for the most part. You know, mm -hmm. driving around to bars. And, uh, you know, packing up your own guitar at the end of the night and driving to the Red Roof Inn, like it's, it's not glitz and glam, but it's still, it's something that still feels like an immense privilege to me. And, and you're grateful for the people who give you that, that privilege. Wow. That's really well said. The, I brought the podcast and, and you, you mentioned it earlier. Um, your show started, I think your first episode was like, 2000 December 2017 something like that does that sound right yeah 2016 or 2017 yep okay that's about when this show started and I'm mm -hmm. curious about like your motivation for starting the show and then also a little bit about the work you put into it there are few podcasts in this sort of genre of podcasts that are so clearly well researched and there's so much, there's like so much work that goes clearly goes into your episodes. And I, mm -hmm. I, I wonder if you could talk about sort of the, the motivation for the podcast to begin with, and then just what that process looks like for you. Well, I, I mean, I, I wanted 
basically I, I made the podcast that I wanted to listen to. Mm-hmm. Um, I was sure that there was going to be, I thought that this podcast should exist where it, it's songwriter talking to a songwriter, but it's a well-informed um, interview. It's interspersed with uh, poetry. It's interspersed with history. It gives you a really good idea of uh, this particular songwriters, whoever the guest is, uh, really puts their life and work in, into context. Um, mm. So I, I wanted to hear that show. I was sure that it existed. It didn't exist. So I, I made it. And um, it did. When I first started, it, it took a lot, a lot, a lot of work um, for every single episode because I was also learning how to put systems in place to get it done. I was learning how to do audio editing uh, efficiently. And now um, each episode does take many hours, but but it's certainly fewer than it used to be. I, I just I understand what the show is more now. Um, and I can uh, compose uh, uh, the the spoken word portions of it a lot faster. I can record it a lot faster. I can edit it a lot faster. So um, it, it has streamlined for me um, a lot to the point where, you know, I, I'm doing a show a week now. I, I used to do a show per month and that felt yeah. like a lot of work. Yeah. And over the pandemic, I took it up to a show a week and yeah. that felt like a lot of work at first. And now I just... I don't know. I just gotten used to it. I just figured yeah. out how to do it every week. You know, <laughs> yeah, man, I can totally relate to that. hundred uh, percent. The the first yeah. part of the, uh, when I first started, it was once a month. And and even at the beginning, yeah. you know, BJ graciously agreed very early on. And so he ended up being episode one of my show. And, uh, um, oh, awesome. yeah, it was great. And, uh, he was on the great 48 tour. Um, and he, he was like driving through Iowa and we caught it. it was really, really wonderful. Mm-hmm. Um, but also I had been writing about music for a while. So I, um, and, and covering certain festivals. So I, I had access to all these folks at Swanee, uh, here in Florida. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and at the time I was kind of like searching for guests, <laughs> you know, like, right. I don't know what yes. this looks, I don't know how this is going to happen. And now it's like, I got more work than I can, than I can keep up with. Yes. That's a nice problem. It, well, that's a different thing too. Once you end up on different publicists mm-hmm. lists. So like this, you have to remember like publicists, it's their job to provide gets for their artists when their artist is paying them a bunch of money to, to uh, promote the new album. And somewhere along the way, to a certain degree, my my podcast, especially in like the roots music world, became a get that artists would. I mean, if they weren't like looking forward to doing the show, they could at least look at it and say like, "All right, well, look, you know, listen to Williams has been on the show, uh, Steve Earle, Brandon Flowers of the Killers." Like they could look at it and be like, "All right, this is kind of legit." So uh, we'll seek out this type of stuff to do it. So once um once it became a target for publicists i mean it's great because i don't have to like you said search out guests i just i just open my inbox every day and i'd say per week i probably get pitched 40 artists per week you know what i mean and um a lot of them aren't within genre so it it wouldn't make sense a lot of them are just starting out so they don't have you know the um the, the footprint where it would make sense to have them on the show yet but still um it makes it easier. It's also crazy to me. It really gives you a look at how the sausage is made. And it makes you realize when you release an album, how many other albums you're up against. I mean, like there's just an incredible amount of music that comes out all the time. And it's, um, it makes it easier to understand why it's so hard to get heard. 
man. Okay. So how do you decide who to have on the show? I mean, at this point, a couple of factors are working in your favor. One is your show is really well respected. And the second is that you are well respected clearly within the community and you have a lot of friends in the community and in, in the sort of songwriter community. So how do you make that make those decisions? Because with those 40 pitches a week, you could you have all kinds of options. How do you determine like what to take and what not to take? You know, I really don't think about it that much. I'd say it's some combination of it's maybe one third. What platform does the person have? And if they have a bunch of people that they can reach, obviously I, I would want to have them on the show because it can bring awareness to the show. And then part of it is just, you know, are they someone whose music I listen to myself? And I, I, I'm just genuinely interested in, in what they have to uh, to say. And then the last third of it would be, I got a lot of friends uh, who I came up playing music with and uh, they'll usually just reach out to me directly and be like, hey man, I got this thing uh, to promote. Can I come on? And the answer is always yes. Because I do want it, it's like a very pro songwriter platform. Like I, I am doing it to help out um, all my all my pals, all, all the guys and gals that I've come up with, I, I, I want to kind of unabashedly uh, help give them a platform, help put them in a really good light and help them, if I can, sell some records and sell some some uh, tickets to shows. Man, that's great. That's so great. Um, is there anybody that you've, uh, that like on your dream guest list that you haven't had that you'd like to have on the show? Sure. I mean, I, I mean, I'd love like all the way to the top. I, I'd love to get some of these guys from uh, the boomer generation and gals from the boomer generation who aren't uh, uh, necessarily going to be working professionally. Uh, at, oh God, this, that's a horrible way of putting it. I, I'd love to get, you know, it, of course it'd be a dream to get, you know, Paul Simon or Bob Dylan or, uh, uh, you know, someone like that on the show, but, but we'll see. I, I don't think it's really, those kind of guys, they're just at a point where they don't need any, they don't need any publicity, you know, really? like they don't care. Uh, so maybe, maybe one of their nephews uh, would be a fan of the show or something and, and make them come on at some time, you know, <laughs> but other than that, uh, I don't know. I just, um, one of my really, really, really big bucket list ones uh, just happened last week and I'm going to publish it on Friday. I, I got to talk with John Hyatt. Oh, so that cool. was like that was a huge one for me. Um, Cindy Howes, who runs the, the basic folk podcast, uh, uh, hooked me up with that. And it was a really great chat. Got to talk with him for an hour and it was uh, pretty meaningful for me. Oh, I love that. I love, and I love those kind of connections. I mean, Jerry, David, the sicko yeah. connected us and like, just, right. but, yeah, yeah. Wow, just so cool. You know, those kinds of, those moments, those organic moments happening like that are just so exciting. Totally. Totally. Yeah. So what, um, if you look back on your career, I, I just have a couple more questions and I'll let you go, uh, break up the fights with your kids. The, yeah, yeah, um, exactly. <laughs> what, when you look back on your career so far, um, what are you most proud of? I'm proud, uh, that I've always prioritized my family and my personal life first. Mm. Um, and that I love doing this for a living and I love that this is my job, but 
you know, I, I'm proud that uh, there was a point in my life where I could have gone down a track where I just, this is the only thing that I thought about or the only thing that I cared about or gave me meaning or gave me any sort of identity. And, um, and maybe proud would be the wrong uh, word for this because I kind of feel like it was almost like a, a blessing or a grace that I got to be able to to not go down that route. I, I don't know how much credit I should take for it myself, but the mm. certainly the the aspect of my work that I'm I'm most uh, fortunate for is um, that I have a life outside music, man. You know, I'm I'm a dad, I'm a husband first, and um, I spend a lot of time doing that. I spend a lot more time over the last five years doing that than I have on the road. Uh, and, and that'll continue uh, oh, to be yeah. the case. And if it ever wasn't going to be the case, I would just straight up quit. Like, and I have my, I have my plans in place in case I had to do that. Cause I mean, it's just, it's not worth it to me. It's not worth it to me to make anyone, um, in my family pay, uh, pay a price for something that I would like to do that I don't have to do, but that I would like to do that. I'd prefer to do. No one should have to pay a price for that. So, um, so far I've been able to, um, in a certain sense, have my cake and eat it too. And again, that's something that I'm, I think saying I'm proud of it would be the wrong way to describe it because that would ascribe a lot of credit to me. And I don't know how much that goes. I, I think it's more that I've been, I've been blessed and I've, I've been shown grace in that sense. Wow. That's, that's such a beautiful response. I love that. Um, we, this has been such a pleasure, Joe. We always end on um, what you're getting down on, the, the, the art that's inspiring you at the moment, uh, maybe a poem, mm-hmm. maybe a, a book you've read or music you're listening to. Like what's got you fired up right now? Well, um, Larry McMurtry, the very famous American novelist, father of James McMurtry, wonderful Americana roots music singer songwriter. Uh, he passed away in April of this year. And I had read one of his iconic works, Lonesome Dove many years before and loved it. When he passed away, I thought to myself, well, maybe I'll read uh, Lonesome Dove again. Cause it's been, uh, I don't know, five or six years since I'd read it. Uh, and then I discovered that that's actually, it's what they call a tetralogy. I didn't know that word before this. So I'm not just throwing around $10 words here, but Tetralogy is a, a four book series rather than a three book trilogy or whatever. And uh, so uh, it's the Lonesome Dove uh, Tetralogy. And it's these wonderful books uh, Dead Man's Walk, Comanche Moon, Lonesome Dove is the third chronologically. And the last one is Streets of Laredo. And Lonesome Dove is the best, there's no question. But um, the other three are are breathtaking in their scope, um, in their description of humanity. They're funny. They're tragic. Um, it, it's a really, I'd say that the, um, the, the driving, the driving idea behind the whole series is the idea that character is destiny that, you know, you have these parts and you, you have your virtues and you have your vices and, uh, to the degree that you keep the vices in check or not, and to the degree that you cultivate the virtues or not, that's where you're going to, that's where you're going to end up. And, uh, you watch all these characters, you watch those, uh, you watch all of those 
virtues and vices play out over the course of decades in this series. And it's, it's an absolute masterwork. So I, I couldn't recommend it enough. Obviously, recommending that somebody read a book is a big ask. So recommending someone read, you know, 4,000 page books, really big asks. But you know what? They read really fast. And um, if you're only going to read one, obviously do Lonesome Dove. But um, yeah, I'd say that's the way to do it, actually. Read Lonesome Dove. And if you really, really like that, which I'm sure you will, then go back to the start of the series. Go to Dead Man's Walk, Comanche Moon, and then finish it out with uh, with uh, Streets of Laredo. Very cool. My hiking buddy and I just uh, hiked to Glacier National Park um, earlier this year, and uh, he he's a he's a pretty avid reader and that's exactly what he recommended he said read the whole series yeah. so i i think the universe is trying to tell me something i think i need to it's so good it, it's yeah. it's i just finished it all and uh, i have my dad reading it right now too we were just joking around we we're like can i just go ahead and read this again right and like <laughs> i might just read it again like I, I know that i'll read it again in my lifetime absolutely wow. yeah, the question is how long i'll wait Oh, that's so fun. Like to, to be that excited about something that you just want to like turn around and read it again. That's, that's the mark of a really great piece of work. I think so too. Well, Joe, man, again, this, this was a a bucket list kind of conversation. Thank you so much for Take their raincoats and their speed. I've come to get my fill, to ransack and spill. I've come to take the harvest for the seed. The pleasure is mine. Thanks for all the kind words. And uh, thanks for having me on the show. Awesome. My pleasure. Have a great day. Okay, you too. Bye. that you sleep in I've come to be the stranger that you keep I've come from down the road and my footsteps never slowed before we met I knew we'd meet before we met I knew we'd meet and I've come here to ignore your cries and heartaches I've come to closely listen to you sing I've come here to insist that I leave here with a kiss. I've come to say exactly what I mean. And I mean so many things. And you've come to know me stubborn as a butcher. And you've come to know me thankless as a guest. Recognize my face when God's awful grace Strips me of my jacket and my vest And reveals all the treasure in my chest Joe Pug, y'all. Thank you so much, Joe. Thank all of you for listening. Huge shout out to Jerry David DeSicca for helping make this conversation possible. JoePugMusic.com for all things Joe Pug. Check out his wonderful podcast, The Working Songwriter. If you like this show... 
I feel confident that you will enjoy Pug's show as well. The song you're hearing in this episode is Joe Pug's Hymn Number 101. Just one of those songs that's been in my life for a long time and continues to give, just like the rest of Joe's music. MarinadePodcast.com for all things The Marinade, including written pieces, photography, our online store, and more. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Subscribe and give us a five-star rating on your podcast app. Tell a friend about the show. These are all free ways to help support The Marinade and what we're doing. Every little bit goes a long way, y'all. If you really like what we're doing, please consider joining our Patreon community, where for just a few bucks a month, you can gain access to Patreon-exclusive content like our show Jason's Journey, where I talk about the moments that shape my creative life and provide a window into the process of making the marinade. Uh, I also post my what I'm getting down on over there. That's the art that is inspiring me at the moment. Sometimes we get together for Patreon happy hours. Uh, we have interviews that um, um, that are over there that are just like episodes of the marinade, but that only reside on Patreon. Uh, we've had a, a live Patreon where our patrons were able to, uh, to to watch me actually interview Seth Walker, our, our wonderful friend Seth Walker, and then get involved and just kind of hang. Uh, it's just a, it's a good time. And if you can join us, please do. If not, above all, thank you so much for listening and spreading the word about the marinade. All right, y'all, it's time for our review under two. This is a special one. It is our friend Tennessee Jet, who was on the show about a year ago and uh, who I got to record with last week, actually. Um, that's coming your way soon. We've got a lot of great stuff coming uh, up. We've got our whole Americana Fest series that I've yet to release, and then my episode with Tennessee Jet as well. So I'm super excited for, for the things that are coming up now. I got to sit down with TJ and talk about his record, South Dakota, and that is the subject of our review under two. Tennessee Jet spent a lot of quarantine consuming records. While he enjoyed many of these releases, none of them were capturing what he was feeling in this moment. So we set out to make such an album. The result is a stripped-down performance meant to capture the moment. Imperfect, but powerful and poignant. TJ, a guitar, and sometimes his harmonica are the instruments that lay his characters bare. South Dakota is a record that examines the present through the lens of its rich characters. Among his greatest strengths as a songwriter, perhaps the greatest strength, is the richness of TJ's characters. In just a few short minutes, he gives us enough backstory to understand why we should care, opens the door to empathy and understanding, then leaves us wanting to know more about these people and their stories. Characters in the layers of their lives are a bright spot of any Tennessee Jet record. On South Dakota, they are ambassadors of self-reflection and examination. The album ends with a song called The Good. He sings, I will kill your hatred, your conscience I'll make clear. My love has no conditions. I will see this mission through, till like me, you see the good in you. On its face, the song is about a loved one, a reminder that while flawed, they are beautiful and full of potential. The subject seems to be going through a struggle of some sort, and it's a gorgeous reminder to look for the good in all of us. But if you listen to Tennessee Jet with any regularity, you know he is rarely content to leave things at surface level. These years here are a call to action for Americans, an invitation to acknowledge the messes that have been made while also looking for or reminding ourselves of the good in us. 
Thank you, everybody. Joe Pug, y'all. Can you believe it? What a great episode. I'm so thankful for every one of you who listens. Until next time, go out and create something. Cheers, y'all.